Hi there. Thank you for joining us on the Redeemer Church podcast. Here at Redeemer, we exist to see Christ exalted in our church, community, and world. It is our mission to lead people into the presence of God, devotion to His Word, authentic fellowship with others, and discovering their ministry. We hope that this podcast is just one of the ways you connect to God's presence this week. Let's check out this week's message. Well, good morning. I overheard from Debbie Barnett that the the dad in question for the Easter eggs is Adam Barnett. So maybe you can give him a hard time for that. This is the final week in our invitation series. We have had a lot of meaningful conversations. In our first week, Pastor Adam talked to us uh, through Jesus' invitation to follow him. Then in our second week, Pastor Leanne shared with us the importance of taking up the yoke of Christ. In our third week, we had a discussion about the importance of uh, drinking from Jesus alone. And uh, last week, Adam, Pastor Adam shared with us how to fish for people and the invitation to be fishers of men. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking through Jesus' invitation to repentance. And our sermon text for this morning is found in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Turn there with me in your Bible or your Bible app. The Gospel of Mark has the least amount of introductory material when compared with Matthew, Luke, and John. So we are jumping into this story quickly early on, and it's right after Jesus had been baptized. And these are the first words attributed to Jesus In Mark's gospel, I'll read them for us. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. It's striking to me that not only is this the first invitation that Jesus makes in the gospel of Mark, it's the very first words that Mark attributes to Jesus in his gospel. And that tells me that these words are very important. So what exactly is Jesus telling us? In other words, what is he inviting us to do? Of course, the answer is repentance. But what is repentance? From what are we repenting? And why do we need to repent? These are all very important questions. And to answer these questions, we need some definitions. Because when we think that we know the meaning of the word that another person is talking about, uh, that can get us into trouble. So I have an example for you. For a very long time, far longer than what I would like to admit, I thought the word euthanize meant to make something younger. You can hear it, right, in the word, euthanize. I I just, like, for a long, long time, that's what I thought was going on. Clearly, I was accepting that conversation in the wrong way. Definitions matter. They're important. So as Jesus is giving us this invitation, it's important that we're seeing these words the same way that Jesus is so that we don't walk away with a different understanding than what Jesus meant. So here are the definitions we need to know or have a grasp around this morning. Good news, kingdom of God, and repentance. 
The word used for good news in Mark 1.15 is often the same word translated as gospel in Paul's letters. Originally, this word did not really have any type of religious significance to it. It was first used to talk about the declaration of good news, particularly regarding a battle that has been won. So it's in, in its strictest sense, the word describes news that is good. So what does it take for something to count as news? What exactly is news? News is an announcement that something significant has happened. So in this sense, it's different from a religion or a moral system or a philosophy. Those we can debate about. But when we talk about news, we talk about news a bit differently. Either an event has happened or it has not. And over time, I think the church has lost the original meaning of good news. I think we've kind of over-Christianized our thought about this. Instead of describing a life-altering, even paradigm-shifting event, we have turned it into advice. Tips that might help us live a better life. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it this way. In many churches, the good news has subtly changed into good advice. Here's how to live, they say. Here's how to pray. Here are better techniques for helping you become a better Christian, a better person, a better husband, or a better wife or husband. And in particular, here's how to make sure you're on the right track for what happens after death. Take this advice, say this prayer, and you'll be saved. You won't go to hell, you'll go to heaven. Here's how to do it. The reason why it's dangerous to turn the good news into good advice is because advice is optional. If I give you advice that I think is good, it has no authoritative component to it. If I'm giving you advice, all of the power lies with you. You can decide what's useful or not. You can take away and apply what you want or not. And we have a fundamentally different task in front of us, however, if we're talking about news. The only option I get with news is to decide whether or not the event is true or how much of the reporting of that event is true. I don't get to decide um, how much of it I like or what I'm going to take home with me and use. There, somebody is announcing to me something has happened. And then I have to respond to this event in some sort of way. So why is this, dif- why is this differentiation important? Uh, the differentiation, the difference, in my opinion, is important is because if Jesus were simply offering good advice, then he was just a good moral teacher. And that's really what he was. And that's a conclusion that C.S. Lewis said we absolutely cannot make. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who has said that he is a poached egg or else you would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. The reason why this was significant for Lewis as he's evaluating Jesus's ministry through the gospels is that Jesus wasn't just making good advice claims. He was really setting up a system. He was declaring himself as we see in Mark chapter one, verse 15, he was declaring good news that God's kingdom has come. And then from there, his teachings were to establish the rules and the values of that kingdom. Now, we can't just take them as good advice because when we take those as just advice, it wasn't really good advice. And so he can't be just a moral teacher. It fails on that level. It is a pronouncement about the kingdom of God having arrived and a pronouncement about what the kingdom values and the rules which support that value. And this brings me to our second important definition. Jesus tells us the kingdom of God has come near. And as we talked about, the most common usage for good news in Jesus' day was to talk about one kingdom's victory over another. In most cases in that time, it was to declare to a particular place that the peace of Rome has arrived, and now you get the benefits of living underneath of Roman rule. Access to water, um, rules and regulations, great city, uh, uh, great uh, civil engineering. All of these different benefits would be a part of you. Here's the good news. So Jesus is communicating the good news of his kingdom's victory, God's kingdom, and then saying that there are actually imperatives that follow along that victory. So it's important for us to know what Jesus means by the kingdom of God, as well as what the establishment of his kingdom means for our day-to-day lives. Technically speaking, a kingdom is a country, state, or territory ruled by a king or queen. And the ruler of the kingdom gets to establish the values and gets to establish the rules which support those values. The kingdom in which we live in today is the United States of America. In this country, we have certain values. Our main value is perhaps the personal freedom. And to support that value, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we have all sorts of systems and rules, all of which protect our ability to pursue the things that we believe will make us happy. It's why we're so blessed to live here in the United States. But there is a danger in this way of thinking. The reason why democracy is so powerful and so attractive is because it gives us the desires of our heart which is to be our own ruler, to create our own kingdom. That in the protection of my personal freedom, what our country is ensuring that I can do with very little limitation is establish my own kingdom, that I can establish what I value and the rules which support my value systems. That freedom, however, sets us up for danger Because Jesus' proclamation in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, establishes a, a different paradigm. He says that we're not talking about the kingdom of Dave. We're not talking about your kingdom. We're talking about the kingdom of God. 
And he's saying that he, Jesus, gets to establish the values and that he, Jesus, gets to establish the rules of operation in his kingdom. So he's kind of setting up this this tension for us that read these verses. Who's in charge here? Are you in charge? Or am I in charge? And Jesus says, he's in charge. So by announcing his good news, Jesus is claiming to be God and is claiming that his kingdom has come here on earth and that there are immediate things that we need to do in response to that news, not advice. Do you all remember the story of Job? Maybe? Yes? Head nods? Shake? Yes? Great. I was just reading this for my devotions not too long ago, uh, and I jumped into this, and as I was reading through, I was reminded of all the horrible things that happened to Job. I mean, he lost all his family, he lost all of his wealth, and he was a really good guy, it seems. I mean, I watch the way that he responds to what happens, and I go, I would never have responded with the type of grace and humility that Job responds with. And so in that frame of reference, I've always come across Job chapter 38, which is God's kind of putting Job in his place, and go, what's going on here? What happened? That feels like it comes out of left field to me. Why does Job get that treatment? So I started digging into the the story of Job a little bit deeper, and I found something interesting in Job 13. If you're not being careful reading over Job 13, you might might miss it, because it pops up in a couple different verses. It starts in verse 3, and then hops into verse 19, and then goes into 20 and 21. I've put these together for us to to be able to, to process this. And he says this, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Anyone see any problems yet? Argue my case with God. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Also a problem. Can anyone bring charges against me? As an open-ended anyone, it's not really directed at anyone in particular, which means it could be directed at God as well. Only grant me these two things, God. So now I'm telling you what to do, God. Do these two things for me. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Now, I don't know about you, and I look at Job and I go, Job has been so good through this whole process. And I look at my own life when I face suffering or difficulty and I go, I don't respond half as good as Job does. What's going on? And really the reality is Job made this one degree shift. And that one degree shift is really important. So he's been being afflicted and he's doing really a great job bearing up in all of this. And then one day it kind of clicks in him. He's had enough. And in this slight moment of weakness, although he does not curse God, he does come after God and he does challenge him. And he's basically saying, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what's happening to me. And God brings Job along almost like an adolescent teenager. And he sits him down and has a hard conversation with Job. And I'm going to read over this out of the New Living Translation, the NLT, for us to hear And I want you to sit in Job's place because maybe you're like me. Maybe you haven't dealt life's hardships as well as Job has. And if you are and you're functioning like me, which I like to function by the rules and values of the kingdom of Dave. I don't know about you. 
as Job engages these, these things and, and God sits him down, hear these words because maybe they can be applicable to you as well. This is what he says. This is what God tells Job. We're, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb? And as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness, for I locked it behind bared gates, limiting its shores. I said this, this far and no farther will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Then he asked Job this other question as if more were needed. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth? Tell me about it if you know. Where does the light come from and where does darkness go? Can you take each to its home? Do you know how to get there? But of course you know all of this for you were born before it was all created and you are so very experienced. These are harsh words. They're harsh words to process. And the reason why they're so harsh is because God is having this heart-to-heart, intimate talk with Job who has gotten feisty in what he believes he deserves and whose kingdom is actually in charge. Job and his approaching of God is saying, God, I don't deserve this. And he's declaring that this is my kingdom. We need to start operating by my rules. And God says, hold on, Job. Let's talk about this for a second. Why don't you let me be God and you be Job? And it's kind of like this father-son talk. It's almost like grabbing your teenage boy and saying, why don't you let me be dad and you be son? Because there's some things going on that I know about that you don't know about. And so let me be God. And I was reading through this and I was feeling this, oh my goodness, I need to repent of so many things. I don't know about you. And so, thankfully, we're going to transition into talking about repentance because I I need it. I don't know if you do. Here's a simple, hard definition of repentance. Repentance is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It's an active dethronement of ourselves. Can you say that with me? Repentance is more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It's an active dethronement of ourselves. Of course, repentance includes an apology. But even more importantly, it's about active submission on our part. It's acknowledging that we are not the ones in control and we don't have all the information to make those decisions. God is in control. 
God has the authority, the power, and the knowledge to make the decisions that he wants to make. In its simplest sense, to repent means to seek forgiveness to God for our sin and then to stop committing that sin. It's really kind of that clear. Simple, right? Say sorry, don't sin again. Easy. You can, you can laugh. That's hard. <laughs> I don't know about you. I struggle with that. I will recognize or process that I am actually the one on the throne, and then I'll actively try to remove myself from said throne, and then before I realize it again, I turn around and I'm on the blasted throne again. Do you share that experience? It happens to me all the time. So stop sinning is a very difficult thing. It's not simple. And because I didn't want us to walk away with that understanding of of what it means to repent, I've come up with seven steps of repentance. Now, we've transitioned gears. We've switched gears a little bit here. This is no longer news. This is advice. So this is stuff that I find to be helpful. Some of it might apply to you. Some of it may not. Um, The first four steps apply to everyone. It's it's kind of these last uh, three that that is advice. The first is to acquire sin awareness. It's through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we have to pray and ask him to highlight the areas in our lives where we are being sinful, because often we don't know. Often we don't realize the things that we're doing that are sinful, and the Holy Spirit needs to partner with us in that conviction. And then he also needs to partner with us in feeling remorse for sin. We can't just make ourselves feel bad about something we don't feel bad about, And that's where the Holy Spirit also has to partner with us to recognize, and I've said this prayer for myself, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart so that we can be broken for the things that breaks God's heart. Then once we've gone through that identification process and remorse process, we confess our sin to God. We apologize to God for setting ourselves up on the throne again and saying, please, God, take your rightful place here. Because you deserve to have it, not me. And then the last four steps are all around stop sinning. And so maybe these will be helpful to you. Uh, They've been helpful to me. Discover the root cause to your sin. Answer the question, why am I sinning? And if the first time you ask that question, you don't kind of turn anything up, ask it again. Ask it again. Find the root cause. Find the trigger to the sin. And then establish clear boundaries for your behavior. It's called trigger avoidance. So find what triggers the sin and then create boundaries around whatever is your sin trigger so that you know if I cross this line, I'm probably going to sin. We'll find out the line. Don't cross the line. Then create accountability. Why? Because we'll cross the line. Left to our own, we'll dance around the line for a while, but eventually we're going to cross that line. So if we're truly wanting to be repentant in sins that are patterned and repetitious for us, we're going to invite someone to speak truth and love into our life so that we don't step over that line. And then perhaps the most important part is to embrace restoration. To truly repent takes intentionality. So why should we Invest all the time, energy, and self-denial required for repentance to work. I think J.I. Packer answers this question very powerfully. Here's what he says. The idea that there can be saving faith without repentance and that one can be justified by embracing Christ as Savior 
while refusing him as Lord, is a destructive delusion. Repentance is the active recognition on our part that we are not in charge, that God is. And without true repentance, what we're effectively doing is saying, Lord, I want you, God, I want you to save me. I reject you as Lord. Yes, save me from the grips of hell. No, you may not reign on the throne. That's what we're doing. So what we have to do is embrace both of these things. Lord, save me, and I accept you as the creator, author, and perfecter of all of life. Because if we don't, and we just relinquish the gospel to good advice, we'll start picking and choosing out of Jesus' commands what we want to follow and what we don't. Which is not an effective way to recognize Christ as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, this is a hard conversation. Repentance is a hard conversation. But here's some encouragement. There is more good news. God is king, but he is also our father. Jesus is the son of God, but he is also our friend. The ruler of the kingdom is not an emotionally detached tyrant, but a loving, patient, and gracious father who is quick to forgive and slow to get angry. Jesus is not just the son of God, but he's also our friend and our advocate, interceding on our behalf in front of the father all day, day and night. He stepped in on our behalf to take the penalty and the condemnation of our sin. And both the father and the son have sent the Holy Spirit And the Holy Spirit is this ever-present divine helper who convicts us of our sin and helps us repent. It's not that God says, here, repentance is hard, but you have to do it. He says, here, repentance is hard, you have to do it, and I'm going to send myself to sit with you and be Emmanuel, and I'll walk you through it. We can do this together. That's the invitation of the gospel, and that is the good news. So while we work to embrace true repentance, God wraps us with his grace, his patience, and his love. This morning, we have the opportunity to participate in this type of repentance and grace through the taking of communion together. And what we're going to do first is we're going to practice part of this repentance, and we're going to confess our sins together corporately. So I'm going to invite you to say this prayer of confession with me. It's going to be on on the screen here. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Hear the words of institution given to us from Paul. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it 
in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jeff is going to play for us for a little bit. And as you're prayerfully asking the Holy Spirit to show you what to repent from, please partake of these elements. You're ready. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church Podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.